Hello and welcome to the New Lions podcast. I'm Faiz Aliafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Al-Hussein, a contributing editor at New Lines and a lawyer and writer. We're also joined by Luna Safwan, independent journalist based in Beirut, the host of the Beyond Politics podcast, and a winner of the prestigious Samir Kassir Award. Anthony, Luna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So I thought we could start actually with sort of a little bit of the background about what it's like to actually prepare for a podcast when you are both in Lebanon. You were saying to me, Anthony, that you were you were having to sort of schedule time to make sure that your devices were were charged and ready for today. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, Luna and I have often talked about uh, how you know living the experience that you're writing about can be interesting, uh, painful at times. And uh, today, when you were asking for you know windows that would work, uh, you just have to factor in little things like powering up your devices. Uh, having maybe lights on for footage, uh, making sure your laptop, your phone, your headphones are charged up. I mean, these are, in the grand scheme, maybe not the most pressing issues, but they're indicative of the broader problems in Lebanon, definitely. I don't know if Luna's got uh, thoughts on this, too. He's been at this longer than, than I have. So. I mean, right now, you don't only have the electricity cuts, um the official electricity cuts that come from uh, from you know the government um, uh, the government led institutions that provide electricity to the country but you also have generator cuts so if we used to get um, an amount of uh, let's say 15 hour uh, coverage a day of generators in Lebanon right now they are cutting this up to you know we'll give you an hour and a half and then we're going to have to turn it off for two hours. But, you know, like an hour and a half should be good for you to do laundry, to shower if you want to, recharge all your devices. If you have an elderly at home that needs to use the elevator, you have to factor in the doctor's appointment, the dentist's appointment um, onto that. And the lucky ones are the ones who have private generators in their buildings. But if you count on the uh, generator of the whole neighborhood, this is when it gets really tricky. Um, and I, I know friends, I know that myself, we sometimes can't answer calls. We run around with our devices going to, to each other's places to try and recharge when there's an urgent meeting, when we're meeting a deadline. Um, and then when you want to look at it from another perspective, sometimes you don't have enough fuel in your car to um to drive for a further area so you would need to think to, to think of that as well oh i'll choose you know the friend who's closer to me um and it gets pretty yeah. stressful to be honest well that's why i mean i know anthony said you know this is sort of a small thing in the grand scheme of things and of course it is but it's also part of the fabric of what it's like living in a country like this because i mean i you know i've, I've lived in countries where you have very limited electricity and you do have to schedule things i mean you know that you have a certain time that it's going to come on and then you have to prepare everything for that moment and it's quite uh, it is quite stressful actually yeah and I, I think what's interesting about that too is the way the burdens the stress the strain all that impacts other things especially in the long run so whether you're looking at, and we can get into this later, I'm sure, you're looking at the prospects for positive political change or just unlocking people's individual potential. Uh, it's, it's hard to do any of that when the basics aren't there. 
And when people, you know, like Luna and other writers, like the wonderful Lena Munzer has sometimes tweeted about, you know, what's happening in her day. And if you look at that, I mean, there's just hours upon hours lost to just handling her basics. Well, that's going to cut into your time, your creative energy, right? your ability to play on a global field. All right. And if you don't have the basics as well, it's also going to obstruct your willingness, uh, again, the time, energy and money you have to pursue the change to solve the problems in the first place. Like yeah, waiting we'll, in line for gas or searching for medicine. Uh, go ahead. No, no, yeah, no, that's right. It's it's very much part of it. And uh, you know, I, I like what you said about. I mean, talking about Lena Munzer, for example, that. You know, Lena is a, a young, healthy woman, so she doesn't need to think about some of the things, Luna, that you were saying about, for example, if you're in a wheelchair or if you need to get up the stairs or if you need to go to doctor's appointments or you need to get medicine. I mean, these are all things that compound perhaps as you get older. And and all of those things need to be factored in daily. True. I mean, everyone everyone keeps, you know, asking this question Um where are the people? Why aren't the Lebanese protesting right now in the streets? This is worse than the uh, than the WhatsApp tax that was supposed to be uh, implemented back in 2019 when people uh, took down the streets uh, in a decentralized manner all over Lebanon. And the answer is to that is simple. You have an economic crisis. You have the toll of the August 4th explosion. We have traumas that we did not yet unpack. We are dealing with our parents and elderly. Sometimes you are responsible for them. Only today, I read that my friend had to wait with her father, who's temporarily on a wheelchair for around an hour under their building because there was no generator and no government electricity. And it, it really, it drains you. It drains your will to go to the street as a protester as a citizen as well, because you have to take care of the basics. And then again, you have a collapsing uh, medical system in Lebanon. So if you got hit on your head, or if you lost your eye, this, is, this has happened several times in the protests in 2019, where are you going to get treated? Is this risk worth it right now with a yeah. country that has literally so little to offer? Yeah, I mean, those are all things, as as Anthony was saying, that you think about when you then think, well, I want to go and fight for political change. We'll come to some of that. Let me start, though, I think, with Anthony's essay. And let's sort of get into some of what he was writing about, because I think it leads nicely into some of the themes that we've been talking about. Um, this was the essay, Anthony, that you wrote for us called Walking Through Beirut's Emotions. And I thought it was quite a, um, a pessimistic essay. You started off quite optimistic. I'll, I'll read a, a little bit. So you start off by saying, Behold Beirut, our capital and last still surviving ever besieged Levantine city. But then it goes on to be quite scathing. You're quite scathing about politicians. Here's one bit where you say, Meanwhile, the caretaker public health minister, another errant boy masquerading as a man in a cabinet, parliament and bureaucracy full of these little anglers, also appeared on television, painting his capitulation as decisiveness and his sycophancy as prudence, all in a day's work for these leaders of Lebanon. But you're also scathing, Anthony, about the Lebanese people. You write, Lebanon has been a purgatory for the past 30 years. The Lebanese hoped for better lives while behaving in ways that undermined their own state and society. They feared that they would unleash demons, their own and those of others, so much that they surrendered to the known devils already running roughshod over them. Do you think you wrote a pessimistic essay? Uh, well, I don't know how 
the essay has been read or how you'd read it, uh, I can say that I felt complex emotions while thinking that day in Beirut and while writing it. And I think it, it, if I were to assert meaning, it would be that there's there's always room, I think, to feel optimistic and pessimistic, to feel hopeful, to feel angry. This is all, these are all sincere emotions. And these are all emotions, uh, quite a few Lebanese and other people in Lebanon, incidentally, uh, be they Syrian, Palestinian or other, have felt for years. I think, I, I don't mean to be scathing in blaming Lebanese people. I, I think they were, they were always sort of trapped. Uh, and this is what's interesting is like, you know, these days we sometimes condemn words like adaptability, resilience, uh, ingenuity, and so on. I think these were all real ways the Lebanese coped with their conditions. But sometimes when you address things in the short run, you contribute to deeper problems in the long run. And, and those are the things that you were trying to say. To say, and I think if you, you know, speak to family, friends, folks uh, who own businesses, who are in the streets, they've always had mixed emotions about post-war and post-occupation Lebanon. And I think if you've gone through war and you've gone through occupations that began and ended uh, with violence, you, you kind of all convince yourself that things could be worse. And so you gradually sort of accept uh, small indignities, humiliations, inconveniences. You tell yourself that it's okay to put up with, you know, 20 hours of power a day. Well, then it's, if I put up with 20, then I can do 18. And yeah. okay, if I can't get public water pumped, I can buy privately provided water and so on and so forth. So you just keep kind of struggling to cope with the conditions around you instead of maybe taking on a concerted effort to change them over time. So maybe it came off as scathing. Maybe we're all blames people. Uh, that wasn't the focus or intention, but, but I will accept it as sort of an ancillary consequence to a point. You do. I imagine you feel that as well, Luna, that, that you do have these conflicting emotions just sort of living through these, um, these daily problems in a city like Beirut. I want to start off by saying that um, Lebanon is, is a beautiful country and Beirut is a beautiful city, not in the, not in the sense of, of beauty itself. Of course, it is not beautiful to have a trash crisis every six or seven months and to see the trash building up. It's not beautiful that you cannot really swim uh, at, uh, at the sea uh, of Beirut without uh, fearing the contaminated water. But, but there's a beauty to the culture of this place, as Anthony was saying, and I think that this is so important, is that it makes you hopeful, but at the same time, it makes you question this hope. And the last time I felt this was exactly few days before August 4th, 2020. The crisis was piling up, it was getting worse, it was starting to get worse actually. And I was just sitting at home and I thought, you know what? in the midst of everything that is happening at least we still have this electricity the generator is working my parents are fine you know we are pushing through this has to end somehow and then three days later there was the, the big explosion or the big boom in the city and um that was the last time i felt that i could be optimistic and pessimistic at the same time right now i i fear this optimism because the last time i told myself we can push through. It's not that bad. You know, something will change. 
it did change, but it went from bad to worse. So, and when I talk to people on the street, when I discuss this with friends who are going through the same dilemma of this toxic or uh, toxic weird complex relationship with Lebanon, we're all feeling the same. Everyone is writing articles and tweets that I'm resonating with. Um, and it's sad to see that in the midst of all this crisis, you have so much energy in Lebanon, but we're recycling it in the wrong way. The political class, the only positive recycling that, um, the only positive thing that could be done is recycling and the political class is recycling it in the wrong way. They are bringing back the, the same yeah. faces, the same people, and it's taking out a lot of this energy and a lot of this optimism that um, we still have, but we're, we're burying as people, to be honest. And do you think that there's perhaps a, an aspect where having this resilience, as the Lebanese undoubtedly do, actually makes you think that, well, we can just get through this small period now, this lack of government, this um, this reconstruction after the blast, this uh, COVID crisis, and you just you end up thinking you can just walk through the next few weeks, the next few weeks, the next few weeks. But as Anthony was saying, it piles up one after the other after the other. Let me tell you something. I think that um, we in Lebanon officially removed the word resilience from our dictionary um, because the implementation of this word um, has has led to to certain crises in Lebanon that reproduced themselves over the over the past years. Now, of course, each and every person, including myself, including friends, family, people in the street, um, people in the government. Um, deputies, ex-ministers, all of that, we all hold a share of the responsibility. But this resilience that we thought we have and that we thought could help us push through ended up piling everything up. And so recently, whenever you mentioned this word in front of anyone in Lebanon, and I think, I think that Anthony also might have, might have heard this, people get furious when you say resilience because we are both mad at the word, at where it got us to, and we're mad at ourselves because we shouldn't be that resilient. There's the point where you should stop being resilient and where you should enforce the fact that this is not working. And even if I will crash, you know, through this wall, I don't need to be resilient there. I need to crash through it and to try and to change something. That I think that's a very interesting part to unpack because a lot of this is to do with the, the coping mechanisms that people have, the sort of emotional stress that they are under. Why do you think people find that word and concept and idea that they need to be resilient problematic given the current situation? Let's start with Luna. Um, as I said, I think that we just, we don't want to accumulate problems anymore in Lebanon. And we don't want to pretend that this too shall pass. This, this, this did not work in Lebanon. Um, we did not deal with our past demons in this country. Our parents did not deal with the happenings and the crimes and the atrocities of the civil war. And everything has led us to a point where Lebanon in different in different areas in different cities. Lebanon is drifting apart from from one another. Um, people are drifting apart, and um, 
this resilience might have served us when we came together to protest in 2019. But after this accumulation and after all of this economic crisis specifically, there is no more will and there is no more there are no more means to be resilient even if you even if you ask any expert or any psychologist and i did and they did some of them did agree with me that this word could be toxic at the moment in lebanon mm. anthony i want to bring you in on the question of so, resilience but um but before i do i also want to read just one line from your essay um, where you said ours has been a self-inflicted and inelegant decay. And so I now feel a creeping shame too. And I wondered what you meant. Talk about the resilience aspect, but I wonder what you mean by feeling shame about the situation in Lebanon. Sure. So on the uh, resilience word point, uh, Luna might roll her eyes a bit. Uh, <laughs> because we've talked about this before. I, I think we just need to be careful with one thing. There's a difference between saying, you know, that we shouldn't have to be a certain way and denying that we have been a certain way, right? So I, I think, you know, the Lebanese have been resilient and Luna's not saying this, but in, in conversations you may have with other folks, they conflate the desirability of a trait with its necessity, Right. And this is particularly interesting when it is like an intergenerational conversation. You talk to your father, your grandfather, your uncles, cousins, and so on. They tell you, well, what do you want me to do? I have to live in the Lebanon that exists, even if I want to change it. Now, you and I might say, well, you, you living in the Lebanon as it exists and, and bending to, to the environment instead of trying to change it, is kind of what has contributed at least to a degree, right? To the degree we're all responsible, um, given our bad faith leadership, uh, which has the lion's share of the blame. Uh, it, it's hard to, I think, to blame folks for, for that, those series of small choices that maybe in the moment they didn't understand were leading a certain way, right? Like, so in the 90s, you might have not serially and into perpetuity, I guess, protested the occupation. You might not have voted in uh, people you s that were unknown reformists. You might have thought, well, the threat of renewed violence is enough to sort of keep me on side with the establishment politics. And, you know, over time, of course, we've seen that the leaders abused the people and the people uh, in adapting and in sort of being resilient, if that's the word, we didn't put enough focused energy into that long-range, sustained quest for change that we'll need. Now, on the on the point about shame, uh, this ties into the conversation we, we've all been having, right? I mean, if you think about the decline of cities, whether it's through catastrophe or a sort of slow decay or both, um, the Lebanese having been presented with a sort of false choice where the decay is leading to catastrophe anyway, uh, you you realize that you're not observing this place uh, like you're in a museum or that you're you know, maybe visiting somewhere else. This is your home. This is your society. This is your people. And, you know, a lot of the omissions or, or, or crimes or sins are yours. You know, we've all put up with uh, injustices. We've all been silent in the face of different forms of oppression. We've all sort of put our heads down and decided to live our lives and, and focus on helping ourselves and our families, which is, you know, necessary and is our right, but has these counterproductive consequences. 
in the long run. And so the question for me is setting aside the shame, and maybe Luna wants to weigh in, is can we reconcile our idiot imperatives with the longer term needs? Uh, that's where there is some optimism, I think, but it's such a long range issue that that it's hard to be optimistic in the here and now. Right? Like mm. Lebanon's going to get much worse. Okay, regardless of what leaders do and regardless of what the Lebanese people do in the next couple of years. And, it, you know, once Luna's had a chance to, to comment, I think we can we can turn into this conversation in detail, if you like. But I don't want to I don't want to talk too long. So, yeah, I mean, I just I, Luna, I want to bring you in about it. But I was going to start talking about the Beirut blast. But actually, I think let's keep going with this, because there's there's something very intriguing about actually living through a period like this where I wonder if you feel like you're waiting for life to start. Because I was looking at it, I was trying to think about it, and I was looking at it from the outside. And I sometimes think, you know, when you say there's this process of forming a government, and that seems to take so long, and then there's like Hariri resigning, and so there's this stop-start. And then you think, well, what, what is it like, like living through all of this, weeks and months of it? It must feel like you just, you can't start your life as you were hoping you can't look beyond the immediate actually it's it's very hard to separate when you work in uh, in journalism and when you have to report on the situation um, there's a sense that I don't need to live a certain life because this is what I'm reporting on right now and this is where it gets complex because at the end of the day we're humans and yes I do feel that I am waiting for for a life to start or for something to to change for me to take you know maybe this this next step or um, not feel that I have to report 24 7 on what is happening because the country is changing into something better but it's sadly not um, you can log off for not even 24 hours you can log off for five hours and then something has happened in Lebanon and has changed and flip the situation around, and sadly not for the best. It feels as if we're all waiting for something to happen. And this is where it makes me anxious to speak of myself. Um, these past few days, where, while we're nearing the, the August 4th uh, date or memorial, um, these past few days have been scary, not only for me, but for many of us, because it really feels as if you're waiting for the disaster to happen. It takes you back to when this happened. And it is linked to the fact that since August 2020, we are all still waiting for life to start. And life, uh, life has stopped um, right then and there. And with this uh, quest of, uh, of immunity and impunity and all of these political figures and security personnel in Lebanon, trying to um, trying to divert the investigation and trying to confuse the truth, it seems that none of us will be able to start living that life that we're aiming at before we actually know what happened. What, what was before August 4th, 2020 was a different lifetime for us. When I think about it, it feels as if it was five years ago and not only 365 days ago. 
And you, you said on Twitter, Luna, that one of the things that you found very difficult about these days leading up to the, the anniversary of the Beirut blast is that these videos keep resurfacing. And in a way, they sort of trigger these emotions that you felt at the time. True. Um, because you would find yourself walking around and, and you would find yourself randomly um, checking uh, the windows or checking the streets. There's something also that I spoke to with, uh, that I spoke about, about with several friends, um, and it's related to the color of the sky and the sunsets also. There was a time when the explosion happened in Beirut um, last August where the sky turned kind of red because of the sun, and there were clouds on that day. And I know many people and many friends who still feel traumatized, including myself, when we look at the sky and when we see these kind of rosy clouds, because it does trigger back all of this to us. Um, and and it, it doesn't, if I may say, it doesn't only uh, bring us back to August uh, 4th, 2020. Lebanon witnessed a series of assassinations since 2004-2005, where many of us, had no clue where would the next blast happen or take place or who would be the next uh, political figure or security figure that is uh, to be assassinated. So this this fear of explosions um, has been with us for a while while growing up or even if some people were adults back then, everyone feared these um, these explosives in the car. At a certain point, everyone feared um, some kind of terroristic explosions where uh, where some uh, some as the government would say some ISIS operatives would uh, would detone themselves or blow themselves up in the middle of uh, uh, of uh, streets that are in the middle of the city so these explosions and this trauma is not new to us it has been here for years it is hard i mean imagine it's a city-wide trauma that needs to be processed and as you were saying earlier that sometimes these these uh, there's no opportunity and no time for people to process these traumas before new ones seem to come in and supersede the old ones um mm -hmm. anthony i i wanted to ask you because you've been there sort of since the blast and i want to and you of course you follow the politics of it very closely even the the following the politics of it i mean the ups and downs that must take a certain a, a mental toll on you, not just, I mean, collectively, as Luna's been talking about, but even individually. Uh, thanks for the question. It's interesting um, because when you asked about people starting their lives, uh, I immediately thought back to 2005. So you talk about following the politics or how tragedy and crisis are layered over problems and challenges back to who knows when. So in 2005, I was in college, right? And folks of my generation went through what we call the Cedar Revolution, a war in July 2006 between Israel and Hezbollah, an 18-month political vacuum accompanied by cities in the capital from 07 through 08. Then we had the 2008 clashes, okay? And all the while, or depending on the moment, you had a vacuum in the presidency, the cabinet, and or the parliament. Right. That extends through the war in Syria, which began in 2011, the slow motion collapse we've had since 2016, the Beirut blast you and Luna had just been talking about, and on and on and on. Now, if we take ourselves out of the fact that we're writers and political observers, right, everyone else is, is struggling with how to begin a life in a place like this. Right? This is your purported peace. 
right? Not a time of war or sort of overt calamity, but even in the time of purported peace, you know, it's hard to run a business when there are disruptions every few months. It's hard to get a loan when there's no confidence in, in the economy. It's hard to get a letter of credit. It's hard to ship something out when the port's closed. It's hard to manufacture goods when you can't import the precursor product, right? And that's to set aside the nepotism, corruption, Byzantine bureaucracy, and all, all the deeper problems that are, that are sort of ours and have nothing to do with, with war and external intervention. So to answer your question, of course it takes a toll on people. Uh, that's why it's, it's hard to blame folks for this double-edged sword of, of resilience and adaptability. I mean, at some point, people need to live. And, and on the other hand, uh, you know, they do need to change their politics. Uh, how do you do that in a place where vicious minorities uh, dominate the established and entrenched elite? And uh, where you have non-state actors like Hezbollah, but not only Hezbollah, right, that are, that are willing to kill even to, to help neighboring regimes survive, let alone uh, what they might do to, to preserve power in their own politics. So yes, yeah. it all ties into each other, right? The, the things we observe at the high level and people's day-to-day -day lives. I, I, want to, I want to add something quick to Anthony, if I may. I sometimes feel that um, Beirut exploded out of anger. Um, and I know that this is really not fair to say when you have um, tons of ammonium nitrate that obviously exploded in the city. So it wasn't something, you know, that it wasn't an angry city that exploded. But when I think about it and look back at what Anthony was saying, is that somehow throughout all of these crises, in 2005, I was, I was 15. So I was, I was no political savvy. I understood politics because my parents were involved and were always following up. But I was, I was not by any way um, deeply involved or even in college. And so... When I look at back at it now, I see that yet the country continued to move forward. So of course there were hardships, and everything was um, everything was collapsing in every sector, a little by little. This the small collapse was building up. This did not happen overnight. In starting two thousand nine, this has been happening for years, but somehow Lebanon managed to push through. Were we lying on ourselves? Were we in denial? Uh, was the economy in denial? Were the politicians smart between brackets to the extent that they made everyone believe that we can be rescued or the country can be refreshed or reset at some point? I don't know, but it feels that Lebanon somehow made it through and then the city was so angry that it exploded. And ever since August 4th, no one wants to push through. We are pushing through to put back doors to put back glass on windows, to support um, families who have no means of support. But we don't want to go back to the way things were. Things will work out eventually. Or, you know, we can we can just hash things out and move forward. It seems to be impossible at, uh, at this stage, unless this big kind of change somehow happens. Well, you, Luna, I mean, you wrote about this for the Washington Post. You were talking about um, the idea of Lebanon moving forward and reconciling with the groups within the country. But then you said that actually even elections, even reconciliation is not going to solve this underlying problem. And the underlying problem, as you identified it in the Washington Post piece, is that Lebanon has an identity crisis. Is that what you, what you think is the core of the issue? 
let me tell you that I'm very excited for the 2022 elections, not because I expect this big win or I expect 128 new fresh faces of deputies in the parliament, but I'm excited to see how the ruling elite and how parties who have been here for, for years would react to these new faces and to these new groups that are trying to make an effort to be very real. They are trying to be present and they are trying to grow. But I am not 100% optimistic, of course, about the results because I know that change is going to have to, to, um, to be implemented from, from different angles, not only through the parachute of elections, but through unions, through schools. You have to change curriculums. You have to reconcile with the history. Of course, you have to talk about what happened in the Civil War. But most importantly, you need parties that are political parties in Lebanon. And this is where I spoke about the identity, is that we should all remember that we are not Christians. We are not Sunni. We are not Maronite. We are not Shia we, when we, when we uh, work in politics specifically and not what we do with our personal lives or in our personal habitats and our beliefs. When you want to work in politics to build the country, you have to be political and not religious. The identity should be Lebanese. It should not be Shiite. It should not be Sunni. It should not even be Muslim. And so this is where I thought that as long as our laws, as long as the division of seats in our parliament and in our three presidencies are based on sects, we are still looking at the identity from a sectarian point of view. It is not a Lebanese identity. It is not, we're not there yet. So um, this is why I insisted on this point. This is why we always try to say, or I personally always try to say that, you know, secularism is so important because it does not eliminate your religion or your beliefs in any way. On the contrary, it protects them from being at the forefront of the fight in such a politicized country like Lebanon, in the middle of this of this crazy region, if I may say. But Luna, let, let me push you a little bit on the, the question of the identity, because isn't there a danger when you are facing multiple crises? And as you say, you know, people are rebuilding the glass on their windows. They are rebuilding the doors with which they enter their rooms. In the middle of a crisis where they are still doing that, is there not a danger that you make the crisis or you make the problem too big when you talk about dismantling the confessional system? Because you're opening up a door that so many people are afraid to walk through. You know, of course, it's been so many decades that there has not been a legitimate census. And you know why that is. It's because there is a fear that if you start to open up these demographic questions, you will end up back where you ended up in the early 1970s. Well, you do have you do have this conversation that is that has been going around um, in Lebanon about uh, the division of this country into regions, or that how you know it's so hopeless and helpless that you know each sect or each party can take its region and we can just deal with it this way because it is not going to work. We're never going to be unified. Of course, if we look at it from uh, from a broader perspective. It's a big change to try and implement, but not if you go through the day-to-day -day life with people, because I can see people bringing up, um, bringing up sectarianism and bringing up how it affected this country every day. And I can see people pushing forward secularism a lot in their conversations lately. And um, it's going to be hard 
to get through to old fashioned communities. And you're not going to do that before 2022. And you're not going to do that in a year. But the mere fact that this door has been opened since uh, October 2019 is enough for me to understand and to believe that, yes, it's going to take a lot of time. Of course, we are risking so much. People, How much can people take? But no, the door is already open. The conversations are happening. And so I would say that this is where I'm a bit optimistic. Anthony, let me bring you in on that. I mean, do you think that there is a danger of making the problem too big? Or is that simply an abdication of responsibility for what is happening in this political moment? Well, this is a, an example of, uh, I'm going to speak for myself here, the, the complex feelings that Lebanon engenders. So I agree with Luna. I concur with her, I guess, maybe disagree on some points of emphasis, but agree on the fundamentals. The issues are also uh, relevant to your question. I mean, can you tackle necessary and sufficient change while you're struggling to feed yourself and your family, right? So again, on the one hand, nothing is going to get solved during, by, or in the 2022 parliamentary, municipal, and presidential elections. Okay, we don't even know at this point, uh, though reasonable minds disagree, if all three are going to be held on time or if the sequencing is going to be changed or if there'll be some sort of glissage, as, as French scholars might call it, slippage, uh, where you just postpone the, the elections and kind of maximize power uh, as an incumbency. But what's clear is that some change needs to happen and begin with those elections, like it's been happening and beginning in syndicates, universities, right, that Luna mentioned. Um, the, the only reason I, I have more complex feelings about it is I see that others who are maybe more militant, who are maybe more entrenched and, and in line with the, the established parties, uh, be they militias like Hezbollah or traditional factions like the the one uh, at the core of the Progressive Socialist Party, whatever it is, they're also feeding off of the very conditions reformists and revolutionaries are hoping to harness to foster change. So yes, on the one hand, you're going to get some fresh faces. I think that's inevitable. Uh, you're also going to get some tactical alliances between uh, fringe elites and uh, new folks who have started parties or who are kind of coming in from civil society organizations to try and end up politics. On the other hand, however, right, as dependency uh, increases, as people's living conditions deteriorate, you know, these parties, these factions, and the militants among them, I think will be able to cultivate higher relative influence, even if their absolute influence declines. So that's just one risk that concerns me. And that's why, while I agree with Luna about what's necessary and what's sufficient in the long run. I also worry uh, regarding the short term, and medium term, right? And, and if, if we don't handle that part properly, you know, you sort of risk allowing people to reinvent themselves, reestablish the same order uh, politically that, that you're trying to change. We've talked a lot about some of the challenges of living in the country. And of course, there have been flashes of optimism. But in general, I mean, some of the things that you've talked about sound like they are very difficult things to deal with day in and day out. 
month in and month out. So let me ask you both this direct question, starting with you, Anthony. Why are you still living in Lebanon? Why not leave? Uh, well, for me, it, it ties into a few different things. So first of all, my family's here, or at least uh, some of them. And so given, uh, to be clear, I do have the, the luck and the privilege to, to have a lot of folks don't even have the choice, as painful as it might be. But, you know, for me, I, I think for now, at least, and for the foreseeable future, I'd like to be around family at this time. That's number one. Number two, uh, I have an interest in the politics of the place, right? Lebanese origin. I, I came here in the 90s, came back in the 2000s, and then came back after the Syrian war. I've spent half my life here. It's a place I consider home. Uh, and I just don't want to leave home. Uh, you know, people's personal circumstances and objectives may differ. Um, but if your objective or one of your objectives is to stay, then you need to put up with whatever the place is like. And the third mm. thing is, frankly, uh, just to be, you know, very blunt, uh, I I'm able to, to make a living here. And so, you know, Again, part of the luck and the privilege to use those words in the, I guess, pre or non-political sense that I have. And if, if you have it, then, yeah, you have the problem of choice. It's a benefit, a blessing. It's also a curse to some. But, uh, you know, there are folks in my family, f folks in my friend circle from high school, let's say, who will never come back here or who are desperate to leave. Uh, and, you know, they were they were desperate to leave even before the current crisis or the, the compounding crises that have sort of manifested since 2019. Right. They, they, they didn't even want to be in Lebanon before these crises mm. for the long running challenges we're talking about. So to, to answer bluntly, it's because I have a privilege of a certain life, to be very blunt, and I have a personal disposition, which. You know, you've you've known me long enough to know this. I'm a little obstinate, so I think between the two uh, is this where I come down on on staying here. Luna, let me ask you uh, the same question directly. Well, why stay in Lebanon? Why not leave? Um, well, first things first. No one, uh, no one uh, owns this country. They want us to leave. Uh, they want the diverse people who can do something, who can write, who can shout, who can convince others of change. Uh, they want us to leave. They want those who have the energy and the voice to leave. And I've seen this happen through the past years, um, through threats or certain uh, political events that happened in the country, assassinations. Many talents had to leave the country. What uh, what makes me angry is that no one owns the, owns the country. It's our country. I personally love it. I love this country and I have always loved living here. And I have always imagined living abroad for a while. But coming back here was always something absolute for me. It was never uh, it was never a full closure or a full idea that I would leave and I would never come back ever since I was young. And so that is uh, one reason. I am also a journalist. And so why would I leave? It's my job to be here. 
It's my job to report from this country. I understand it. Uh, I've lived here all my life and I know every alley and every street. So who better to report than us Lebanese from our own country? And then the last thing is that, and which is something that broke my heart throughout the past years, is that I covered the Syrian revolution and the Syrian uprising. And I've heard stories of friends who have had to be displaced from Syria or had to leave or had to go to exile. And it always broke my heart. And it always gave me this kind of motivation to say that as long as I have the power, and the will, I will stay, but I'm not going to lie. The moment that I feel that I'm so consumed and that I'm not able to produce as much as I should, I would, and I might consider leaving for a while, but as long as I have this energy um, that that was inspired by the love of, of Syria from different friends who keep talking about this country until this day, even though they are in exile or in different countries, um, I feel that I should be committed to my country at the moment. It's not time to leave yet. Faisal, if I can just expand, just Luna reminded me of something while she was talking. It's about safe family. So <clears throat> my grandfather almost left Lebanon in the 50s. He was on a boat at the port or uh, somewhere near there <laughs> and uh, decided at the last second to jump off. Okay. And so instead of ending up in Brazil, which was where he was supposed to be, he stayed in Lebanon. My father left to study. He came back. And so we, like hundreds of thousands of Lebanese, are, are returnees. And you, you look around, you see your grandparents are here, your parents are here, your cousins are here, okay? And it's just your home. And that has to do with the objective metrics we may look at to determine whether a place is livable, right? There's a um, serious emotional attachment, a sense of legacy and continuation. But if, if I can, for just one moment, I'll be brief, I promise. Just take us out of the, the class of, say, let's say political organizers, people who are interested in observing politics, analysts, journalists, others in the commentary, right? And talk about just a person, let's say an engineer living in Lebanon right now, okay? You've had, in the last two years alone, 500,000 Lebanese, at least, have lost their businesses and jobs. Okay, 40%, and you know these numbers might be obsolete by the time this podcast airs. 40% of people in the workforce are unemployed. Others in construction, hospitality, and transportation you know, are unable to earn income regularly due to the crisis and due to the pandemic. Millions of people have lost salaries, benefits, and savings as the currency has slid and collapsed and then collapsed again. Right. Uh, and then you look around and the leaders are still, you know, horse trading and log rolling over whether, as Luna said before, you know, whether uh, Maronite of the third largest party should get X or Y ministry or some Druze leader who wants a quota should get the other ministry. OK, and now the World Bank itself estimates that maybe 75 percent of the Lebanese need some form of assistance. It's, it's crazy. So folks like that. I think, might look around and decide to do what's in the best interest of their families. Uh, and, you know, I, I, um, I'm not trying to contradict Luna. I'm just trying to modify what we're both saying, which is, you know, if your job is to observe the place, to report on its politics, to maybe engage in political life, you know, in, in some sense, have a purpose. 
you mm. have things to talk mm. about to get paid to do that's a little different than other Lebanese and I think that can create a perverse again emotional interaction with the place or the I worse and worse it gets the more the more demand there is for folks like me and Luna to talk about it as our families now I don't want to speak for Luna but you know as our families suffer as our friends suffer you know it's, a, it's another way the, you feel complex emotions I think Luna do you want to come back in I completely agree with uh, with Anthony because, of course, we're looking at it from our perspective as uh, media people, researchers, journalists, um, people who are working, who have something to do here. But this is why I, I would never blame anyone who would want to leave at this stage because there's something that I believe in and it might not apply to, uh, to a lot of people, but it applies to at least a few is that you can leave Lebanon, but a part of Lebanon never leaves you. So if you are destined to come back with your new expertise, with your new energy at some point to Lebanon, and I've watched so many friends and so many people do that, then you will. Um, but if you cannot do it right now, and if you need something new, if you need to make money and to travel or to study abroad, no one has the right to dictate what you do at the moment. And a lot of people would look at it as runaway. I wouldn't. I would see it as people looking for a way to survive so that they could actually offer something to this world instead yeah, of drowning yeah. here. Yeah. No, it's funny you said that. Just last thing I'll say is like, you know, some people uh, who have more and are blessed with more are passing judgment. I mean, these are, it's a very small number of people. They may be overrepresented in our slice of society, but. There should be no shame in people deciding what's right for them, whether it's to leave or whether it's to stay and not engage in the public life in the way we're talking about. You know, the, you've inherited circumstances that are so bad that I don't think there's just one right way to to live your life. And, you know, if you're a cocaine communist who's like in a duplex living off of somebody's expat salary or whatever, you're not necessarily uh, living in the same sort of place someone else's so yeah you shouldn't shame them or or comments on whatever it is they're doing to, to live their life yeah um i asked a deliberately provocative question uh, thinking that it would be a, a short answer and here we are eight minutes <laughs> later but i think it's very useful for the audience to hear it because i think it's it's interesting to hear the level of emotion and agonizing that people feel in the country this depth of love that people feel for, and, and it's something you know you guys know you'll hear replicated across the region people don't want to leave Iraq they leave Iraq only as the poem says when it's the mouth of a shark they leave Syria only when they absolutely have to they leave all of these other countries but I really was being provocative because I wanted to lead you to a conversation that Lena Munzer started on Twitter talking about how easy it is for outsiders to talk about leaving and how easy it is for when the conversation turns to Lebanon to say, well, look, if you don't like it, why don't you just get out? But actually, it isn't that easy. And that was what I think the, the eight minutes of listening to the two of you suggested, that you can't leave because of the emotion. You can't leave because of the family. You can't leave because of work. You can't leave for one simple and straightforward reason. It's your home. Yes. And others don't even have that level of choice. So say, let's just, again, say you're someone who applies for a visa and it's denied. 
I had a friend who is, let's say, part of the cultural elite, okay? Someone who has a higher degree, who works as an analyst. Her visa to a country abroad, right, where she had a job lined up, was denied four times. And what about maybe her uncle who works as a repairman? Or what about my cousin who sells uh, drapes furniture for a living? You know, like... Yes, on the one hand, you don't want to leave even if you have the option to, because as you say, it's home. And on the other hand, millions of people don't have that, re that option. And they don't have a reasonable choice. They, they are here. And, and that also goes for Syrians who are here, uh, you know, more than a million uh, who are here and can't go to their places of origin because it's not safe. Okay, and it goes to Palestinians who we've classified as refugees for decades. So you have millions and millions of people in Lebanon who don't really have a choice that we sort of glorify, you know, for whether you stay or go and kind of paint the nobility in, in, our, in our options. Do you think then that the way that this is talked about on social media and um, from the outside often does provoke that level of belief that nobility is what keeps you staying or the resilience aspect we talked about earlier? I think Luna should answer this one. Um, actually, I, I, I would just say that um, as we were saying, what keeps us here or what keeps people here is so much more complex than people wanting to fight the fight. But also what I think what keeps people here is also the fear of what we might not be able to find abroad. And um, this is something that also someone wrote about on Twitter uh, a long blog post about what it's like to be a Lebanese expat abroad and um, the worry that you will carry with you abroad if you leave friends and families behind thinking that, all right, so I got out, now I can start living my life. But, um, but the, reality, the reality hits differently when you're abroad. And I haven't experienced that because I did not live abroad for a long time. It was only almost half a year. But so many others do speak of that. And there's a kind of fear. It's not only about resilience. It's not only about wanting to stay here to challenge the system. But it's also about the fear of what would we feel um, if we ever left or if we ever had to leave our families behind. Mm. I want to talk to you a bit about uh, writing about the country that you are living in. It's sort of related to what we've been talking about, but both of you, to some degree, uh, make a living off telling people around the world what life is like in the country. And Anthony, you said to me that uh, even though you're, you are trying not to write exclusively about Lebanon, in some ways it draws you in. You referenced uh, Al Pacino in Godfather 3, the bit where he says, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Although for the audience, I should point out that uh, Anthony, being a young man, pointed said to me that it's because of old Al Pacino, which I thought was a very unfair thing to say about one of the most accomplished actors of our generation. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it does to some degree pull you back in, doesn't it, Anthony? Yeah. <laughs> Sure. Uh, first, thanks for outing me on that one. No, but so the old Pacino point, just to be clear, is about, you know, he was a much different, more nuanced actor, I think, as a young man. That's all I was saying. But uh, on the, the point about Lebanon, jokes aside, pulling people back in, I mean, it relates to the last two questions you've asked. 
this one, but also the point about leaving, right? And as Luna mentioned just now, you, you can't really leave home in that sense. So, so if you're abroad, okay, and your family is here, your property is here, whatever is here, and the Beirut blast happens, you, you're not emotionally shielded by distance. You're still feeling, you know, maybe it's different, of course, and it, sure, you're not at risk of a certain kind of physical harm in that case, or political repression, or suffocation, or vacuum in other cases, but you're still exposed emotionally and otherwise to that place. And um, when you live here and try to write about other things, it's a, a psychological issue where you feel maybe the time and energy you're spending on, on a certain piece should be spent talking about Lebanon and the people, again, not just Lebanese in it. Uh, on the other hand, you also want to, again, this goes back to what we said at the beginning, uh, whether you're a writer or a lawyer or an engineer or a craftsman, I think it's fair to want some personal fulfillment in life and talk about or do what's interesting to you. And that's the push, right? Mm -hmm. Writing about Lebanon is perverse because it's painful to do. I mean, as you know, both the pieces I've done so far from the lens, I didn't actually want to do. And it, it's it might sound funny to people, but it's painful to even read them or to have people ask me about them. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, there, there are other things you want to talk about and you just feel maybe a little guilty doing so. You feel this um, responsibility to report or the responsibility to represent? Of course, there's 24 hours in a day, right? And if you set aside leisure time and sleep, you have X amount of time to engage in activism, to write, to do whatever. And so an hour spent here, dollar spent there, is an hour and dollar not spent on something else. That's how I look at it. And so this, again, it's, it's, it's sometimes complicated. Uh, but I, what I will say again, and this is, it's not a point I'm making just because Luna's on, on the line with us. It's just something I've, I've noticed as a recent sort of entry in the, to the commentating class is sometimes we get so wrapped up in the story or what it's like to write it or what it's like to, to think about what you just asked that we, we don't focus enough on, on the, the life in the place more generally. Right. Luna, and, and you... That's, that's where I think it, it is. That's the real problem being here, right? Is how you build a, a policy that lets people pursue these passions, right? Luna, do you feel that, that it's very difficult to be living in the city at the same time as, as reporting on it? Because there isn't that, even that sort of mental distance between what you're reporting on and what you're living through. It was definitely easier before the pandemic when everyone had the option to both, um, both uh, health-wise to travel abroad for a while and also economic or uh, money-wise. Um, not only me, but all Lebanese could separate themselves for a bit from any crisis in Lebanon to practically go abroad for a weekend or for a few days and then come back with a fresh um, set of eyes. It has definitely been uh, harder since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's definitely challenging when you're exposed uh, to the daily news and when everyone around you know that you're a journalist. And so all of the topics and all of the conversations are around the news, the political class, the cabinet, what is happening, even if you want to go to the to the hairdresser to 
you know, to change the mood for a bit and not to talk about politics, you would have to wave your book, you know, a book that you're reading so that they would understand that you need this space, you need to separate because you're not able to separate physically nor mentally. So you at least need to dream of something different. But to answer your question, um, no, it hasn't been that hard to report from here while I am living the situation. Because had I been abroad, I would have missed a big aspect of it. And part of trying to portray the people suffering in a fair uh, in a fair manner, while I know that I might be more privileged than some, is to be able to um, be in the same situation, is to be to wait uh, or to be waiting in, in the line to fill up your, uh, your car with gas or to have an argument with your father because he wanted to take the car and you are fearing a certain shooting or a certain tension to happen in that gas station. So you would think, you know, it might be best if I go because, you know, you're a man, I'm a woman, so they're not going to to uh, start off arguments with me, but you might get uh, intense and you might end up starting arguments with someone. Living these details enables me to report uh, in a more accurate way. And I honestly don't imagine myself reporting on Lebanon from abroad. It's just not who I am as a person and as a journalist. You know, I think we've I mean, we've talked for a long time and I think we've focused to some degree on the negative aspects of what this particular period in Beirut is like. And, and you know, as you said at the beginning, Luna, it's those of us, we've all lived in Beirut at various times and it's this wonderful and frantic and frenetic city that sort of stays with you. And I wonder, as we end the podcast, if you can leave us with a little bit of optimism about the future and about the city, starting with Luna, if you'd like. Sure. Well, the way I see it is that there's a, there's an opportunity in Lebanon right now, despite all of the sadness, um, and is that for people to claim back their place and their space in this country and in this city, everyone is talking about uh, August 4th, 2021, which coincides in a few days. Everyone is urging people to go to the streets, people to demand the truth, and everyone is trying to insist on the importance on understanding through a transparent investigation what happened on August 4th, 2020. How did the city explode? Who destroyed our city for us to be able to build it back? Before understanding and knowing who destroyed it and what caused this, no one is willing to rebuild, even though the will is there somehow, as I see, as I feel, as I hear from different people. So they are waiting for August 4th, 2021. Invitations are everywhere online urging people to go and protest. And this is how you, you take back your city, a city that was destroyed um, only a year ago. Anthony? Well, it, so if you're looking back, right, we're, it's one year since the Beirut blast, um, and also, incidentally, on the, on the point of impunity, since the verdict of the Special Tribunal for Lebanon won its uh, trials, um, 15 years since the 2006 July War, you know, 30 years since the end of the war, uh, you, you know, these dates, commemorations, these key moments are adding up. Um, but the question of 
optimism for me ties into this, right? So I remember um, during the Syrian occupation feeling like, okay, step one is ending an occupation. And then we worry about what comes next. And I, and I wonder sometimes what someone might have felt in, in the Beirut of 1982, right? And we know that the 90s were, for all their faults, you know, a better time than that. So I think, you know, if we set aside the question of timeframes, where I think in the long run is, is the only time you can be, you know, truly optimistic without sort of empty posit positivity. Uh, I am optimistic. Yeah, I, I think it all begins you know, one step at a time. And like Luna said, some of those steps can be taken now. The, the only question I have is, are we as people comfortable with the truth and willing to do things that are now necessary so that others can later do what's sufficient? We may not reap the fruits of what we do, but if we're comfortable with that and if we're willing to work and put in the time and maybe take the adaptability and resilience and, and just be smarter about how they're applied. And as Luna said at the beginning of the conversation, implemented. Uh, yeah, I am optimistic. Luna Safwan, Anthony Nordesain, thank you very much. Anthony's essay, Walking Through Beirut's Emotions, is on our website, newlinesmag.com. And you can follow Luna on Twitter at Luna Safwan and Anthony at A.L. Hussein. Thank you all for joining us. 